Hello everyone and welcome back to the episode of the United District podcast. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by former Manchester United and Wigan defender Pat McGiven. Pat, delighted to have you on. Thank you for coming on. Welcome to the podcast. Lovely. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for the invitation. No, that's right. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. You're actually the first former Manchester United player we've ever had on the podcast, so it's an honour. We're very pleased that you've decided to to take the time out of your day to, to come on here, so uh, so thank you for that. Uh, we'll start off from the beginning of your sort of United career. We'll sort of go from the top, if you like. Um, so obviously you joined Manchester United in 1992, I think I'm right in saying, for around £100,000 is, is, is the fee that I think was mentioned. I'm not sure how accurate that is. I can sort of ask you that as well. How does that sort of come about? Obviously, it's, it's a dream for everyone to be associated with a club like United, all the sort of fans listening, you know, it's a dream for all of us to, to, to ever make a move like that. I'm just wondering, how did that sort of come about and what were your sort of immediate feelings and what was your immediate reaction to, to, to the initial transfer? Oh, look, obviously delighted, I think I've, I've mentioned it, I always loved sport, always loved sports. so growing up, whatever sport was going to primary school, the same secondary school, but always had this idea that, you know, I just wanted to get paid for something I love doing. And, you know, while I, yeah. I flighted in and out of other sports, you know, I, I did cross-country running, played Gaelic sports, did basketball, did things like that within the, the school. When I got to 17, 18, I, I, I got to a stage where I'd grown quite a bit and I was captain of the, the youth team and in the fringes of Port Adine. So um, I was initially meant to go on trial to Port Vale, actually, mm. um, a few weeks before, and that fell through. So I was actually, I was just playing a, a reserve match, um, I was 18 at the time, um, for Portadown, and after the game I was called in the, the manager's changing room, the first team manager's changing room, and Eddie Coulter, who was the, the chief scout at Manchester United at the time, he was in there as well, and he just says, look, Manchester United would like you to go over on trial, so, like, with all due respect to Port Vale, um, <laughs> whatever, a club like Manchester United, Ask you to go over and trial, of course, you know, you had a swum over. Um, mm. So, went over for, for the trial and played played one game. I was over there for a week, uh, played a reserve game. And, and you know what? It was, a, it was a big step because you're going from, I was playing in the youth team, I was playing reserve team football. It was on the fringes of Portadown first team, but I hadn't played for the first team even at, at Portadown at, at that mm. stage. And all of a sudden, I was, I was thrown in a United reserve game. Mm. Get a to Villa, so uh, you, there was Mark and uh, Dwight York and and Daly Atkinson, God rest them, and and obviously I did well enough there. And yeah, it was from there. Then I was invited to another trial in the July of that year, and after that three week trial, then I think if it wasn't on the same day, myself and Dion Dublin were around the the, the the same week or two that we we ended up signing because Dion I always remember. Just before I signed, I was put out and, and, you know, the cliff, as much as, you know, the cliff is all the history, it mm. had a great pitch. It also had a great pitch for the A team and the B team to play on. It was it was like a carpet. And just before I signed, I'd come back in from training on the final day and our Dion Dublin, Dion was, was also training at the time. And the gaffer made me do one-on-ones with Dion Dublin. And like, I'm, I'm quite a big lad, but Dion's a big fella as yeah. well. And it, it maybe was only for 10 minutes out on the cliff with, I suppose, people watching and the gaffer watching. But um, it was 10 minutes. It probably felt like an hour. But it was after that he called me in then and, and asked me, you know, the, say that they were interested in signing me. So I've actually signed for three years in that July stroke August. And uh, it was it's obviously a dream come true. Mm. So when you actually got to the training ground, you say there that sort of you uh, was it Sir Alex then who actually sort of um, confirmed they were interested in signing? Because obviously now with football, the hierarchy and the transfer structure is completely different. Was it actually sort of the manager Sir Alex at that point who was directly involved in sort of your signing? Yeah, yeah, it was a gaffer mm. that called me into the office that morning after uh, uh, did that that work with with Dion out on the pitch and. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he had that direct involvement. He always did. I mean, not, not just at, at our level, but even right down to under-12s, under-13s at Littleton Road, the way the, the games that were going on there. Yaffa was very regularly around him, and I suppose he, he knew everything that was going on at, at the football club. And I think that's, you know, when you look at the longevity and, and how he built, helped to build the club, you know, it, it, it shows that 
and even with the class of 82, I mean, the, the lads that, that went the superstar and the, the likes of Bax and, uh, and all of those lads, they, mm. they ended up, he, he, had a, he took a real interest in the youth coming through. Um, yeah. So that that's, I suppose, very different to the way that it is now. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I just want to ask you quickly about your first sort of encounter with Sir Alex. So I did read a sort of a funny story about sort of misuse of sort of how you addressed him. I just wondered if you wanted to sort of tell the listeners about that. Yeah, look, I mean, it was it was very early days and I, I had actually just finished my A-levels before I headed across England. So I wasn't used to our workplace and... and uh, so I was I was out there, and I think it was uh, the first few weeks. I was I was I'd come in back in from training, and was walking up the stairs of the cliff. And as I was walking up, the gaffer was coming down. I think it was where the set of parents and a, and a young apprentice lad. And as we were walking up, he says, "All right, son," and I, I says, "All right, Alex." And you know, to, to me, <laughs> I, I didn't think anything much of it at the time. But he says, uh, "Did I go to school with you?" And I was like. Um, no, I says. He says, "Did I go to school with you?" And I says, "No." He says, "Well, then don't call me Alex. Call me boss." <laughs> and, and that was it. So that was the introduction. But you know what? I mean, we, we talk about these, and obviously during that time, you, you you had discipline, and you had the manager had his role within it. And mm. you know, as much as people talk about the hairdryer or the gaffer, you know, it wasn't seen that often. But he did have an aura in which. He understood that you know you had your place within you know as as a player and he had his place as a manager as well. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. We'll get on to a little bit later on about sort of more of his sort of management and his his approach to things. I was going to ask you quickly. You sort of touched on there with sort of you know your sort of one on one with Dion Dublin, etc. What was training like at Manchester United? I'm sure you know was it just completely different to any other training you experienced at any other club, or was it similar at Wigan? You know, because you know there was obviously in the United sessions. I'm sure there was you know an array of talent, and you know what was what was the sort of intensity around that. Yeah, look, I mean, the intensity was there. Obviously, the qualities are as well, but you know, there was an intensity in training which which was actually brought then in the games. And um, so whether it... And, and you had this, I suppose, a conveyor belt at that time because I always say this, you know, as on the fringes of the first team. Um, but uh, the, I, I look back at it and say, you know, to be in the fringes of a team and a squad with those sort of players in it, you know, yeah. it's... it's you know, hugely privileged to to be around that. But there was almost a conveyor belt where between the B team, the A team and and the reserves and first team, they were all winning things, you know. So you had that mentality, you know, in the five years as or I think the reserve team won the the league three times in the five years. And and with that, um, you always had that conveyor belt of young lads coming through, the experienced professionals. Some of them were coming back from injury, some who were at the, the other stages of their career and were helping the young lads. And the gaffer just had 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 helped to build that mentality that every team they were they were driving each other on. So when it came to training, you knew that it was going to be tougher generally than, than a match. You know, mm. and everybody drove each other. I always say, and when I talk within the area of mental health. Competition's healthy as long as it's healthy competition, you know, and it's not there's not a bullying and everything goes on. But driving standards and you know, Robbie talk about Roy Keane as we go on, but that's what that's what Roy did. He just helped to drive standards the same way as a gaffer did. Yeah. I was going to ask you about you know figures like Roy Keane. Obviously, it's 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 not an easy task, sort of navigating your way around. Sort of, I can imagine a training ground with these sort of big characters. You know, every United fan dreams is going behind the scenes in sort of obviously what's Carrington now the Cliff when you were there. Was there any sort of moment when you first arrived when you sort of saw someone who perhaps got a bit sort of starstruck or perhaps intimidated? Was there a figure who you sort of saw and think sort of took you aback a bit? Yeah. Very rarely did I, although when I first went over, you know, when I first went over and, and obviously Brian Robson, the Brian was there and he was mm-hmm. at the other stage of his career. But, you know, I'd only ever seen him in Shooting Match magazine. And yeah. all of a sudden he was up with the England yeah. captain. And then as it went on, you know, the, with quality players throughout. But I, I was sort of growing up with the likes of Bax and Scolzi and the two Navels and, and those lads. So they just seen they were seen as teammates. Um but Eric Anton Eric was one that, that sort of had an aura about him when he walked past you, you were like, you know, this man is an aura about him. 
Um, but generally, I didn't get, you know, I didn't tend to get starstruck because I still had a job to do in terms of training and, and trying to break into the first team. And that was something that I tried to, to, to do throughout my career, you know, even when I went to Wigan where I played most of my games. Um, it, it was always about trying to, I suppose, to understand them more than anything else. So being starstruck by them, yes, you respect them, but... Um, Eric Cantona probably would be the one that just stood out as, as uh, having an aura about him. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I think, you know, a lot of us can sort of you know, believe that, to be honest. Um, did you Do you think, you know, with characters like that, do you think, you know, did you learn a lot off them, even though you sort of, you know, you didn't make, you know, wealth of first-team appearances, but you were obviously the part of sort of core training and, and being around sort of these, these characters like Cantona and, as you say, Robson, that sort of the later end of his career do you think you know was that was that a good thing for your career yeah oh, look, there's no no doubt about that and that that's a game that i would speak about within the mental health area so those areas of character um you know it's like these are things that build resilience and um i had a conversation last night again and, and i know obviously my my debut against york certainly wasn't uh, something that I want to remember too mm. long, but it's part of the history. Yeah. And, but what it does is it, it actually helps to build resilience because at a big, big club like that, the, you're going to have moments. And if you want to break into the first team and you want to be part of it and you want to make a career even for yourself at, at a good mm. level, you have to have that that resilience within you. So um, all of those character traits, you could take them from the likes of Kino, you could take them from Eric Scolzi. You know, every every player I, I try to, I've always been the one who who wants to be educated and wants to learn off other people. So I didn't have much better players to be able to learn from. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so. yeah. No, I can I can imagine. Obviously, you've mentioned the, the names. It's hard to see how you wouldn't be able to sort of take take things off them and, and sort of bounce off them, especially with someone like yourself who's interested, as you say, in sort of bettering yourself and educating yourself in, in, you know, mentally and in the game as well. So we'll go on to your debut. You ended up making a debut in 1995, which was a League Cup game against York, as you just said. Did you feel ready by this point? Had you got an inkling that you were sort of working your way towards this debut? Or was it sort of close to the match day you were sort of told you're going to be making your debut? Or was it something you'd sort of come to expect? I knew that I was... Uh, I knew that I'd been... Doing well, the, the manager had spoken to me a, a few weeks before, and I'd been playing reserve games and doing quite well in reserve games. Saying I went over the week before to run a Volgrad within the squad, mm. um, so I knew I was on the fringes of things, and I knew also that he blooded younger lads in the, the likes of the League Cup. So I, I, I knew I was there, there are bites. You know, you, you go into that situation obviously against York, and there's there's a mix there. You know, and I've spoken about it before. So you people like you know Paul Parker, Dennis Irwin, Gary Pallister, you mm-hmm. know the, the likes of myself and Kevin Pulkington, who are really good mates, are really good mates, and um, you know, but we're on the, the the fringes of things, and you're putting players in, and, and he's mixed the team up. So really. I, I was aware of it, and I knew I was I was doing well enough to be around that, mm. um, you know, around that squad. Yeah. You know, when you're you're put into that position, then sometimes things go for you, sometimes they don't. In in the first half, we were I think we were one 0 down. The lad scored for I think Paul Barnes scored a long range effort mm. outside the box, and in the second half, literally we tried to play offside myself and Pally. We we hadn't I had never played a full game alongside Pally in a competitive mm-hmm. game, so we got the offside wrong. I chased back the rest history. You know the only thing is, and funny every so often I come across this is uh, a snippet of the the linesman at the time who gave the the penalty that mm. that wasn't a penalty. Yeah. You know, and, and then says that you know he was struck off refereeing because of the fact that. Um, you know the gaffer was was putting pressure on him and asked him was he from Liverpool. You know <laughs> it, it, he he put that in the story and you know he doesn't realise that it, it could have affected my career. You know mm-hmm. I don't but I don't play the victim within that. You know as well. Uh, yeah. the, these things happen. You make a decision. The, the following day, uh, you know obviously the gaffer uh, gave us a bit of a rollick and which rightly so. And uh, again as part and parcel of football. But the next day. Uh, there was banter flying about from the players and that's all part of it. You know, mm. you just 
have to, if you want to make a career for yourself, you have to be prepared to, to take the knocks along with it. So it was, it was difficult. Um, you know, it was, it was disappointing, you know, because it was the biggest honour I've had to, to put on a, a first-team journey for Manchester United. But it didn't stop me from working hard mm. and, and doing the things that I had been doing beforehand. If anything, it was my final year that was the most frustrating when I, when I you know, got badly injured. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, you say that you sort of, you dealt with it well and you sort of just got got, got on with things, you know, in, in a sense and sort of tried to drive forward. But I can imagine, you know, in the immediacy after it, it was, it must have been quite tough for you to deal with with the debut. And I was going to ask you, do you think in a modern football climate with obviously social media, you know, players are being constantly sort of scrutinised and they can be directly addressed, obviously, now with social media. Do you think your experience and reaction to your debut would have been different should social media have been around it at, at the time? Yeah, look, it, it could have it could have been different. I, I don't think it would have been, to be honest, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, the, the offer told me from a very early stage, you know, um, don't watch too much of the media. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you, you do that, where it's constantly bombarded, especially today, then, you know, you have to choose what you do. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure the gaffer had a handle on the, on the media then, you know, he was very clear in that. But in today's of, of social media, I still think the, 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 the old-fashioned values are, are hugely important, you know, mm. of, you know, taking it on board, of learning, of that whole growth model of knowing where your weaknesses are and then, then working towards improving those. So um, I don't think it would have changed. Mine would have changed. Um, I think the environment definitely for the younger generation in terms of social media and playing professional sport, especially at the very top level, probably would be is very difficult because you're a lot of the time you're working not only on the club's brand, but also your own brand, mm, and, yeah. and that that comes more to the fore now. You know, I yeah. was never about I was never about that. I was just you know my my idea, as I told you at the very start, was I wanted to get paid for something I loved doing. To actually do that at the greatest club in the world for five years was was amazing. Yeah, no, no, it's fantastic sort of mentality and way to way to be. Obviously, now things are, as you say, very different. Which I've got a couple of questions from Twitter, which will, which will um we'll get onto in a little while. So that was your sort of reaction thing, right? Reaction to things. What was um the immediate? We talked earlier about sort of the hair dry. Did you get the hair dry treatment, Officer Alex? And I think I read some of that. His his reaction was sort of different the day after, if you like. So I don't know if you just want to go into sort of his immediate reaction and then perhaps the day after at the training ground. Yeah, look, I mean, at, at times there was the hardware, but not not that often. You know, mm-hmm. again, he was a bit like Eric Cantona in that there was an aura that, you know, whenever he walked into the room, everybody sort of was was quiet yeah. for the majority of the time. Maybe the more senior pros, they, they were able to, to, to deal with that a wee bit more and they had a bit more banter. But as a young lad coming through, you know, but... There's so many stories. Like uh, even we talk about York, but not long after that, I think during that year, I was on the 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 bench against Newcastle. Mm. I think it was that United won two 0 at Old Trafford that particular night. But there'd been a couple of injuries, and Maisie was playing centre back that night, and I was on the bench. Now, um, when I think it was close to half time, I think Maisie got injured, and I was up getting warmed up. But eventually the gaffer made the change and he put Kino in the, the centre back that particular night. Now Kino was you know, you could have stuck him anywhere, you could put him in goal and, and he'd have been the best player of the night. Yeah. You know, because he just wanted to win that game, but he went into centre back, he was tremendous. Uh, he was still a young rookie. He, he I think Kino scored that night and he was given man of the match. Mm. So I remember after the game going and then speaking to my dad and just saying, look, dad, I know I was on the bench, centre-back. I says, like, I thought I'd get an opportunity there. You know, I know it was a, a huge game. It was a, a huge game. And he says, well, go and speak to the manager the mm-hmm. next day. So, uh, you know, as much as I was quite quiet, I still had an opinion and I, and I still wanted to improve. So I yeah. actually went in the next day, the next morning, and that wrapped the, the gaffer's door. And... I just said to him, look, Gaffer, you know, I know obviously it was a big game, um, 
as on the bench. I thought maybe I'd, I'd got a chance. I says, you know, because I want to, to, to get the opportunity. And he says, look, Stuck Roy in. Roy's an experienced player. He says it was a big game for you, you know, and you you still you still are, are learning the game. He says so. I just didn't think that was the right time. So we had a chat about it. I headed off. Now when I think back about that now, he, he really could easily have said, "Look, who do you think you are, son? How'd you get?" But he didn't. He actually, you know, we spoke about it, and then I went out and. I suppose he, he appreciated the fact that I wanted to, to play as well and I was hungry to, to play. So those are the things about the gaffer that, that maybe people don't always say. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's just for, for me, it was always a learning experience and, and how I could try and improve my game. Mm. Was that testament to his his management then that you felt you could go and actually knock on his door and speak to him? You know, because I'm sure there's there's managers that you know young players would perhaps be too you know intimidated or, or scared to do so. Was that a testament to him, or do you think that was your own sort of strength in sort of having the courage to go and do so yourself? Yeah, I think it was probably a combination of, of both. You know, mm. it, it, it's definitely for all the you know the times that people talk about the hardware. The, he, he, he was a great man manager, you know, there's, there's, and, and also with the kids, you know, he tried to give them teach, almost like teaching points. You know, mm. I, I think I've, I'm not sure if you've seen, heard the story, but I also played a game in the, in the reserves where we played against Everton midweek and we had, I think we had quite a few of the young lads, so Bax was playing, the two Navels I think were playing, mm. um, Scholes, I Buddy was playing, but we were all very young at the time, and they had a, quite an experienced Everton side out with Graham Stewart, a lot of the more experienced heads, and they beat us 3 0 that night. And that, that it was Jim Ryan, who's a manager, gave us a bit of a rollicking, but the gaffer came in straight after he'd been at the match and just told us, look, he, he, he told us about standards, and he said, look, make sure that you're in at six o'clock tomorrow morning. Now, we didn't have to be in until usually half nine for training at half ten. And, at six o'clock we arrived, the, the caretaker opened up and as he, he opened up, we all went in and sat in and the, the cliff, I don't know if you've been at the cliff, but the cliff oh. is at the street, as soon as you get there, there's a, like a foyer, a glass foyer, so you can basically see people coming in, but you sit there. So at six, well, most of the lads were probably there from, from half five, just mm. making sure, but at six o'clock he opened up, we sat in, you know, for the next uh, sort of, Half six arrived, nobody there. Half or seven arrived, nobody there. Half seven, nobody there. Eight o'clock, and the gaffer attempt to come in always very early. But he walked through the door, you know, very disciplined. Walked through the door, and just said, "This look, lads, if you worked in a factory, that's what time you'd be in at." And he then just walked past us, and that was it, you know. So again, it was just a teaching point. If you want the, you know, you want the standards. Then, and you want to make it in professional football, then you have to be prepared to not have, you know, regardless of whether Everton had an experienced side out or not. Mm. If we're kids wanting to make it in the game, you needed to, to buck up your ideas. So that, yeah. was, that was him. Yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a fantastic story. It's a great, you know, example of Sir Alex, you know, with, with his sort of the way he sort of managed. What do you think his best sort of attribute was, manager? I know a lot of people are sort of not critical of, but perhaps, you know, they don't speak of Sir Alex in a tactical sense. You know, it's always sort of spoken about how he sort of dealt with the younger players, as you've as you sort of alluded to, um, how he sort of man-managed. But, you know, a lot, not a lot of people give him tactical credit. Do you think, you know, his tactical skills were sort of up there, up there with the best? I mean, I'd personally, looking, looking at it with what he's won, I mean, it's hard to say, say not so. But do you think, you know, he's perhaps underrated in, in some of those other aspects outside of man-management? No, look, I mean, tactically, he, he would have got it right, but more than anything, um, yeah. he, he, he knew people. And, yeah. and that, that was the biggest thing about him. He knew players, but he knew, he knew people and he knew their character and he delved into their character. So I would say in the five years at Azure, and as I say, I wasn't always with the first team in the first few years, uh, the first two or three years in the reserve team, and, but you had to play games against the first team. And, but even in those... I could probably count on one hand the amount of times it would have went and did sort of set pieces of patterns of play, you know, within within that. But he always got players in who were able to make the right decisions, mm -hmm. or you know, nine times out of ten make the right decision. And he, and he, he, he 
he give them, I suppose he give them sound bites and points and who was picking up, you know. But they always they always say, listen, I've gone into management, and it's not it's not space that scores goals; it's people that scores goals. So mm-hmm. if it was the same with Addy, you know, you told you which player needed to be picked up on the really important parts of it. So tactically, yes, he he was astute at that time, but mm-hmm. obviously the game has moved on. That has become a more tactical game at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that would have mattered to, to, to him because you know you only have to look at the, his final season, and, and I know he, he's gone on record and says it's still a really good squad that he did. You know he, he still had good players within it. Mm. You know, but people from the outside looking in all say that it was probably the weakest squad that won the Premiership. Yeah, um, but he always found a way, and I think that was more down to what he got out of the people concerned than anything else. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of comparisons have been drawn between, you know, what you've just said and the sort of management style of getting to know players and between Sir Alex and now the current Manchester United manager, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, obviously a lot of comparisons have been made. I mean, it's a, an easy comparison to make, really, isn't it? You know, you obviously played under him for a good number of years. Um, what do you see? Do you see anything in Oli that sort of reflects Sir Alex in a way? Do, do you see him sort of building something similar to, 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 what, to what Sir Alex did in his time at United? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I got to know Ali in the in the the final year, and mm. Ali, as as much as he didn't say too much, you know, mm. you could always tell that he had that, you know, that strong character trait, and um, mm. that he's obviously brought in the the management. And, and don't get me wrong, especially in today's environment, I'm sure. Ali won't mind me saying that he's got a few more wrinkles than what he did when he started, you know. But definitely those traits. Um, he, he, again, he's having to deal with players and, and deal with big egos, you know, mm. at, a, at a club like Manchester United, where you expect him to be at the top end of not winning leagues. Then mm. He's allowed to deal with that way, but he has went about it. I, I, I always talk now about, you know, you had warriors. During that time, whether it was on the pitch, the management styles were different at that stage when Sir Alex was about. But now you have to be a mental warrior because, as you say, you totally scrutinise whether it's through social media, whether it's through the media, the, the mainstream media. You mm. always have that, and you've always a camera somewhere, and there can be even with you know supporters everywhere as well. Yeah, so all of that dynamic to, to deal with, and and Ali. Yes, I've seen people say, oh, he smiles too much, you know, even when they lose. Mm. Al- Ali is hurting, you know, Ali, there's no doubt Ali's hurting, but what he's doing is he's building a, a really good group, not just mm. with the playing staff, but, you know, the people around him, like Darren Fletcher, you know, that, that, that's just come in, um, like Cleggy, you know, Cleggy again, like Cleggy was during my time, what a, what a great lad, and, and mm. That you've got, he's getting a great support network around him, and and mm. that's important, especially in today's environment again, where as you say they have all the different facets of it. Um, so I, I definitely, there's no doubt that, that Dolly has the same character traits, mm. and he's getting a he's getting a great support network around him. Yeah. Um, when I spoke to I spoke, on the podcast, we had Franz Hook, who was Louis van Gaal's assistant, and he was at Barcelona at the time Pep Guardiola was as a player. And he said that Pep Guardiola was all, constantly asking questions to him, you know, asking he wanted to know all about Cruyff and and sort of Ajax and, and stuff like that. And he said that he could see from an early stage that he was obviously really interested in getting into management from that early stage. Did you see that at all with Solskjaer? Because I know a lot of people have spoke about his sort of, uh, you know, him sort of sitting on the bench and watching it in a very sort of educational and, 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 and analytical way. Um, could you see that with Ollie? Did you see that there was an interest in management early on? And if not, were there any other sort of players who you thought sort of had a sort of laser vision in, in looking at the game in a sort of tactical sense? Yeah, look, I mean, Ollie was, uh, he was always a thinker of the game, you could tell. But the, the majority of players that were there, were, were thinkers of the game. You know, I always remember my early days on on a Monday or maybe a Friday, there was the, the room, the coaches room just off the manager's office at the cliff and you had the likes of Brian Robson, you know, you had Brucey, you had all the senior pros would have went up, you know, and that I had it always been like a boot room where they just had that, that chat with the coaches. Yeah. Um, so Ali was was a thinker of the game, there's no doubt about that. He was very he was quite quiet. But he, he, had a, 
he had a great way with him. Uh, I always say I've always mentioned about when I went away to Athletic, and I had never been to the, the Carrington to the new training ground, so. I decided at one stage to contact the club and say, look, would you mind if I just uh, got an afternoon off? Or no, mm. yeah, no, it was a morning. I got a, got a morning off, so would I be able to come to the training ground just to watch a bit of training? Mm. At that stage, it was international duty. So, but um, so for whatever reason, I think Rio Ferdinand, I wouldn't have known Rio, but Rio Zer, mm. I think Yaz Nabil, Yaz Zer, and Kino and um, Kino and, and Ali training, mm. but. I just stayed well away. I, I hadn't seen those lads for, for a while and stayed yeah. away. As soon as training ended, I, I was re- actually re- walking back towards the car just to get into it. And, and Ali and, and Roy came over to me and asked me how things were going. They still had that interest. you know. Mm. And he was just a genuinely nice person, Ali. You know? yeah. But, but he, he, he also had that hunger and the, the strong character traits that you need as well to, yeah. to be a manager at the top level. Mm, no, that's that's obviously encouraging to hear as a United fan now. Obviously, that's the man we're we sort of entrusting at the moment. And obviously, you know, I think it's hard to say he's, he's done anything but a fantastic job so far this season. Um, we now got some questions for Twitter. Thank you to everyone who, who submitted a question. Some some brilliant questions in. First one is from uh, Macnoro, who asks, "Do you keep any shirts or other souvenirs from your career?" And I had to ask this one because I do love a bit of football memorabilia. I must say. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I had the. Unfortunately, I wasn't uh, one of the players that made a, a fortune within the game. So, the, actually, I, I got rid of some of my shirts, you know, a, mm. a while back. But I always made sure that I've kept some as well. I mean, yeah. the, the, the one in particular, I've got the debut shirt. I think I'll, mm. I'll maybe show you. It was, I had it on for Sunday uh, mm. when we, we played out. Yeah. <laughs> on Sunday's game, I'll, I'll give you a quick gander. there. You may see this or may not. Uh, <laughs> I didn't see that because <laughs> oh look um, it was a very you know I suppose really good time because mm. we have a bit of banter even within the coaches group um, yeah. so there's a lot of supporters from different clubs so I'd stuck that on just as part of it I, I don't know if you, you can see that, but, that yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that's my shirt that I, I, I played against York in, and I've got yeah. it signed so um, yeah, look, it's really hugely important to me. It's a great part of my, my time, you know, in my career. Um, so I've, I've other other parts of it, and I've still got my, my United uh, blazer and things like mm. that, that, that that I've kept as well as, as my mantos. Um, yeah. Funny, they, not so long back, somebody had contacted me just about uh, uh, the, the grey shirt, you know, the, the, the infamous yeah. grey shirt that was yeah. from Southampton. Yeah. So... It, 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 yeah, look, I mean, I don't have, I don't have the credit anymore, but that's the most important one that I have there. Yeah, of course. I've got to ask you this. Has it been washed? Sorry, I know. <laughs> I, I, I've got to ask you. Has it been washed since that day? <laughs> I don't think it has been washed since that day, no. <laughs> Lovely. I, I don't know. Sorry, sorry, Pat. Um, I've only, only, only got about 60 minutes of sweat on it, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Oh, go on to the next question, uh, which is who was the best player you ever played with or against? I can imagine this is a bit of a tough one for you. Yeah, look, I mean, there's so so many quality players in, in so many different positions, but the the one that just seemed such a, a natural footballer to, to me was was Paul Scholes. I mean, Scholes. Yeah. It was only when you were on a pitch playing with him either in a game or in training that you realised just how good he was. Mm. You know, he, he always. I always explain like to the kids is being. It's like watching the Matrix where everybody, everything slows down, so he can decide what he wants to do. You know, and scold his range of pass, and you know, in, in the early days, even you know, scoring goals and even getting into the box late and scoring goals with his head. He was a good header of a ball, but the big one was just his awareness of people around him and and how they manipulated the ball once he once he had it. Were, were the big ones with Scotty. So, you know, you can talk about Eric Cantona, Roy Keane, Brian Robson, Paul Lynch. I, I could go through every player and say, uh, you know, Dennis Irwin. But the, mm. the one that stood out for me was it was Paul Scholes. Mm. I find that interesting because I think a lot of people who have 
played with Scholes or have played against him. You know, he's always the name that seems to sort of spring to mind. I think that's that's interesting from a sort of people who've played with him in a pro sort of point of view. So, I mean, that's a testament to, how, to what a player sort of Scholes was. Um, got another question from Matt McNorrow who asks, uh, you've already sort of alluded to this a little bit. I wonder if there was anything else you wanted to, wanted to tell us, which was, uh, what was Cantona like around the cliff? Obviously, you say he obviously had a bit of an aura. Um, was he poetic? Was he? Did he sort of speak a lot? What was it? How, how, no, what was, he... <laughs> look, he, look, he, 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 he liked the, the the joint end of the banter. There's no no mm-hmm. issue with that. But he, you know, he's a man of few words as well. Or like him, he, he probably he certainly spoke more English than what he led on because I think mm-hmm. for the media he just he just didn't want to do too many interviews. Yeah. But generally, as I say, he was great great with the kids. I remember, I, I was injured at the time and sitting up because the cliff had, had the glass looking down at the main pitch. And mm. I think it was after training, and Eric came back in from Littleton Road, and and all of a sudden you could see him rowing. Uh, I think it was about ten footballs out, mm. and about 30, 30 meters out from goal, and then was just striking them to hit the crossbar. And I think about eight out of ten hit the crossbar and came back to him. And then all of a sudden you see, a sudden you see backs, you see Scolesy out, and they were doing the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was brilliant with the kids as well, Eric. Yeah. Um, and in a similar vein, it, it wasn't a question from Twitter, but I was going to ask you sort of, you know, you've already touched on on Roy Keane. What was your first sort of instance of, I've already asked you sort of about meeting Sir Alex, you know, Keane is the other the other sort of, imagine, who, what I'd imagine to be sort of an intimidating figure. I'm sure he's not like that sort of when you get to know him on a personal level. But uh, what was your sort of first instance of meeting Roy Keane? And was he, is he as sort of tough as he leads on? Oh look, Roy, Roy has his moments, and, and I always say you only have to look at the white of Roy's eyes to know whether to stay away from him or not. Yeah. You know? But um, whenever you know, I haven't spoken much, obviously, about you know the the charity trying to be smart, and obviously my brother's death through suicide in the first year. But yeah. I always say that after that, it 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 changed me in a way that after Philip's death, that I was more susceptible to, to people's feelings and if people were reacting different ways you know mm. I'd have seen that probably out on the pitch you know because mm. of my experiences um, within that so even as that moved on within my, my career um, any of the lads that were coming over especially from Ireland or were Irish whether they were from the north or the south yeah. you know I'd always made a point to speak to them so I remember that particular day that I first met Roy. I was I was in sitting at the the canteen at the cliff, and mm. Roy must have been doing part of his medical, and he was in yeah. the cliff for it. And he came in, and this Teresa was with the landlady at, at at the cliff, and uh, Teresa was an Irish lady as well. And Roy sat down, and I, I ended up sitting down beside Roy, and we just had a conversation. He was just signing from Forest at the time, mm. so I made a point of it, and. I always got on well with him then after that, you know, where your pals leave and obviously he made such a such an impression on Manchester United and my career was spent at, at Wigan, but we always got on well. Um, so because of that, as I said, when it came on to the, the training ground, you know, mm. if you weren't doing your job, then he would let you know and that, that, that was fine, but that, that was all part and parcel of it. You know, yeah. but there was a really good sign that even from the charity perspective for Roy to come over without knowing a lot of the the details around Philip's death because Roy joined the club a year after Philip took his own life. So, um, but when he was asked to do it, you know, he, he made a point of doing it and, and, and I'll always feel, you know, I'll always be appreciate what he did. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. It's 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 good to hear, you know, that that sort of support in that sense, you know, inside a football club with obviously a name as big as Roy Keane. It's it's good to hear that. It's encouraging. Moving on to some questions around sort of mental health. It's obviously something you're sort of very passionate about and, and involved in. I was just going to ask sort of general question or sort of how it came about, the sort of work you've been doing around that, and sort of what sort of inspired you to to get into that and start doing this this fantastic work. Look, it it it. it took a while to, to be honest I think it was uh, you know obviously whenever Philip um, passed away in 1993 you know mm-hmm. I was still quite driven to make a career for myself so the gaffer yeah. gave me as much time as I needed but at that stage you know I, I needed to be doing something be proactive and training and 
you know. So I suppose I probably parked the bus in the in those terms, you know, yeah. in that whole grieving process. But when I came back home um, and I'd finished my, my football career, you know, it's almost like a, a bit of a, a death itself in that, you know, you, you the game that you love, all of a sudden you're not playing it anymore. And mm-hmm. while I was doing physiotherapy, it was a little bit too clinical for me. Mm. So I found my way through time then into the mental health work and obviously found a trade to be smart. Um, and now I do work within the area of mental health. And again, it's been that learning more about how mental health can affect your physical health and mm. how it can then help others. That is, yep. has meant, meant more to me. You know, I mentioned a little bit earlier just about after Philip's death, even people people's reactions. But I always say that if it came to a decision between me being a top footballer and having to work the walk over people or came to me being being a, a decent person. I prefer to be the decent person. So mm-hmm. I suppose all of that came into play when it, it when I got into this type of work then. Mm. No, it's interesting that you sort of speak about um do you think uh, the entities of sort of physical and mental health do you think they're speaking about in two sort of divisive terms do you think you know there should be more of a realization that that these two things are very interconnected because I think you know they're always sort of mentioned in quite a separatist way you know you've got your mental health over there and, and your physical health on a separate basis do you think that's sort of a key idea that you're sort of trying to push and drive with your work yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I, I'm very fortunate again. I always had a bit of an education about me, and my dad always yeah. sort of pushed me to have some sort of education. So I did my physio degree while I was still playing at Wigan. I went went through my coaching badges, you know, right through to the pro license. Now mm. I finished my pro license and also did my health and well, mental health and wellbeing diploma. So mm. I've always had that, but now that link is there, and, and it's, it's so you know, it's like talking, when I, I try to talk about it in practical terms, it's like, you know, a small stress, as in going for a run with stress bones, and but it'll actually make them stronger. Mm. Or a big stress, like jumping off, a, you know, a 20-storey building and then landing on your, your leg will break your leg. Mm. You know, it's the same in terms of mental health. You can have small stressors throughout the course of a day and weeks and, hour and, and, and months, but... Yeah, and stress is an important thing, but when there's too much stress, then you come to a breaking point, and it's mm-hmm. even in terms of mental health, you know, it's that, that link towards it, which which I just love doing and within practical terms. Mm. Um, going on to another question here we've got from United Arena, who's asked a couple of brilliant questions, the first of which is, uh, how open do you think football is at the moment to players opening up about mental health? I definitely think it's you know it's opening up more that conversation surrounding mental health and, and some of the you know the, the big names within sport and within football that that have, have now spoken about it you know mm. it was during during my time obviously you know it, it's only over the last number of years with the, you know the likes of the death of, of Gary Speed and mm. you know play from a player perspective but even players now you know are. By speaking about it, they're 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 getting it out there that it's not just about the footballer; it's also about the person, you know. And I think that can that can work both ways from a, you know, from a social media point of view and the whole trolling industry from people. And at the minute, supporters can't go to games, but mm. when whenever supporters were at games and they were shouting, you know, a level of abuse that was talking about people's mothers and, and things like that, you know. There's still a person beyond that who mm-hmm. still has to go back home and deal with it. Yeah. And yes, you can become battle-hardened, but um, th- that whole side of mental health—it's brilliant that people are speaking about it. We've got a we've got a, a logo and, and slogan within Train to Be Smart called "It's Smart to Talk," mm-hmm. and the "Smart" actually stands for sharing my anxieties relieves tension. Mm-hmm. So it's only when I've actually started talking about my brother's death and learning more about it. So mm-hmm. the more conversation that could be had surrounding mental health, it's I think it's brilliant to say. No, yeah, completely agree. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a credit to, to people like yourself who are doing this work, and you know that we are now in a in an environment now where, where it is more open for, for 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 people in general and for you know specifically footballers to open up about it. So obviously, you know, there's there's nothing negative about that in, a, in any sense at all. Another question from from United Arena. He uh, asks whether. With big money now involved, are young players protected from now being treated as commodities rather than human beings? Yeah, look, I mean that 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 is that's a difficult one, and you know mm-hmm. we we spoke earlier about it. It's it's the brand, 
you know, it's yeah. you could talk about the club brand. And at that stage, there was more attacks, I suppose, around the club brand. Now, you know, you've also got the the personal and individual brand as well. You know, but with the, I always say surrounding these things, and yes, I'm still old school. You know, I'm I'm one of those who, like, like Roy says, you know, Roy's been on quite lately and said, you know, at the time, whenever you're a footballer, you concentrate on the football, you know, mm-hmm. but where you give your time to, even from a mental health perspective, the more things that you can do surrounding your positive mental health and where you invest your time is, mm-hmm. is hugely important. So that protective issues, especially of the younger players who don't necessarily realise that it can be used for good and, and having your individual brand is important, but also um, the, the more work you put into your game along with the rest and the rehabilitation and all, all of the above because injuries will happen throughout football mm. you know the more that they can invest in time in football the, the more you'll be re- remembered as a Roy Keane a Paul yeah. Scholes uh, you know that's why people that's why people like spell self speak about those because they just they concentrated solely or certainly mainly on the football side of things. So there is a lot of protection needs to be done surrounding mm-hmm. footballers, you know, especially the younger ones who yeah. are, you know, the, the people that are, are the, the kids that are trying to get into the game, but that whose whose main reason for getting into the game is for the big heist and the 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 big the fancy car. The gaffer told me uh, that I sat with the gaffer a couple of years back, and he says, you know, that group, they never played for the money. They eventually commanded the money, but they never played for the money, yeah. and that's a great, that's a great thing to bring to the kids. Yeah, no, of course, and you know, you say there that players, you know, it's, that's a criticism that's sort of been levelled at a, a lot of players in the, in the modern climate that they've sort of focused more on that brand than they had football themselves. And I know Roy Keane obviously speaks quite openly on Sky Sports about players who he thinks perhaps have have ebbed towards that way. I was just going to ask, you know, you don't have to name names, but did you see any players sort of in the time that you were playing where you thought, you know, they were perhaps, you know, obviously it was it wasn't it was a different climate at that point with with sort of brand building as as a player. Did you see any players where you thought, you know, they were perhaps more focused on on creating their image rather than the football? Was that something that you, that you saw in your playing days? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I always say I'd, I'd put up the 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 photo of of ninety six, ninety seven, and and like I go through all the players that I was stood alongside and and, and then that photo with you know, and and there was nobody that that was arrogant. There was some that I didn't get on with as much, you know, mm. but but I never ever looked at it because I wasn't really into the whole branding end of things and you know the the personal end of things. I didn't really look at it too much at the time. Maybe the likes of the likes of Sharpie compared to the Gigsy and that whole contest at that stage where you needed to invest the time and the 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 keeping yourself within the team. I suppose mm. Sharpie had that side of it and he had the Sharpie shuffle and he had the other sides of it. Probably he was the one that that when it when it came to, to keep himself within the team was may or may not have been the one that that you would have looked at. But there's there's players around there. There was there's loads of players that had their own ideas. I know when the, 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 the young lads came through like the two novels and um I think it was Skulls I still got Skullsy's boots in in a frame. Yeah. With the but there were pony boots, you know, and, and I don't think pony even exists exists anymore. Yeah. But when they first broke in, they were they were wearing pony boots. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm sure they got something far more of them. Yeah. But, but again, that, that that's the big one. So there, there was brand in the fight, whether it was you know Sharpies, whether it was the younger lads coming through. The the brands and the the companies were were trying to jump onto that. But it isn't anywhere near to the same extent as it is, you know, as it is now. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, one last question from at Fresh Prince United, who asks, "How can we as fans help in protecting the mental health of players?" I, I always say, uh, with within that, you know, it's it's an emotional game, and you know, as everything opens up, and hopefully it will open up, up fairly soon, and supporters can get back into grounds. Um, Supporters do have a responsibility in that, you know, they they have to support their team. Yes, mm-hmm. you know, people will make mistakes, and and even the best players in the world will make make mistakes. But also, 
it, it's trying not to make it personal to them, you know, because as I say, it's always, yes, you have the player, but also you have the person behind that player. And you maybe don't know what has gone on behind closed doors before they've come to a game. And even the best footballer in the world will not have clarity all the time. And things that will go on outside of the football will not necessarily, they won't necessarily know about. So I think it's trying to get that balance right more than anything else. And then I'll always say, my dad always had a great saying, you know, if you've nothing good to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. Yes, we can all have our opinions, but mm. we have to have a, a bit of an informed opinion as well when we're doing that. And yeah. just always remember when you're about to say something, you know, yes, emotions are part and parcel of the game if they don't if they're not there it won't be the same game it's it's a mm. little bit it's a little bit like um tackling you know yeah. i think if they take that totally out of the game it won't be the same game but you know and that balance needs to be redressed but it's the same with this you, you know emotions are high and sometimes that will come out but try your to, to, to make it as li- less as little about personal as possible yeah. you know, and, and support the team as, be, as best you can because you know what players thrive off that you know mm. at Old Trafford you know that that whole thing of attack 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 you mm. know the, the supporters see that as well and they're, they're very clued in when it comes to you know the, the, the gaffer had that about him where you know if, if, if Real Madrid scored three then the Man United would score four which they did <laughs> and it was at that game when I, when I left for Wigan Mm, yeah oh it's fantastic advice I think you know and I think you know as fans I think we're all victims sometimes of perhaps being a bit you know a bit extreme and a bit you know you've got as you say you've got to just step back a minute realize that you're talking about a human being here and you know you've got to have a bit bit more decency as you say a bit more of an informed opinion Pat it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you I've thoroughly enjoyed it I just wondered if you had any last words anywhere we can sort of find your your charity work or, or whatever if you if you want to have any last words yeah, look, th- thanks very much for the invitation. I think it's been great. It's, it's great to tell these these stories and I suppose speak about all the, the really strong characters and, and terrific footballers throughout, mm. throughout my time there. But, um, you know, we, we had the, the um, question and answer and dinner fundraiser with for the charity, uh, Trained to be Smart Juniors, and um, it was five years ago on the 4th of February. So mm. on the 4th of February this year, we have, we have put a little clip at clips on of, mm. uh, on YouTube on our channel Train to be Smart Juniors um, so I can send you the link and hopefully we can put, put the link on as well but yeah. we we did that five years ago we put small clips on it but I contacted Roy recently and mm. he said that as, as you know with the fifth year anniversary that we can we could put on the full and added version mm. so now, I tell you what it, it is TV gold um, yeah you know, and, and I'm sure his opinions in the, the last five years have changed a wee bit. But as I said, he didn't say anything too too nasty, but he, he gave his opinion. And I would say it's an hour, hour and a half long of mm. an interview. Really, really engaging. Came across really well. So if anybody can subscribe to our, you know, our YouTube channel, uh, then that, that interview and, and will be going on on the, the 4th of February. And as I say, it's TV gold and well worth watching. No, I'm looking forward to that. I think I'm going to be tuning in with a with a box of popcorn as well. And I urge, you know, everyone, we'll, we'll post the links as well for everyone to get to go and check out the, the Train to Be Smart, as you say, YouTube channel. Pat, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you.